This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta, and today I'm talking with Chris Myers. Chris has been the drummer for the band Umphreys McGee for almost 20 years, during which time he has toured the world consistently and recorded 11 albums. The band has just released its latest, Asking for a Friend. In addition to Umphreys, Chris has been involved in many other projects, including Kick the Cat, a kind of prog fusion outfit based in Chicago, where Chris grew up and started his career, as well as freelance session work in Nashville, where he now lives. We would appreciate your support on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash working drummer and a donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive content from our former guests. Think of this as professional development for drummers, all useful and actionable lessons for the working pro. We're populating new content regularly and as little as $1 a month gets you access to all of it. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can also make a one-time donation through PayPal. There are links for both on our homepage at workingdrummer.net. While you're there, you can learn more about this episode and check out our archive of over 300 episodes. Also, please subscribe to Working Drummer Podcast on your platform of choice. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Lastly, however you listen, please leave us a rating and review. This helps new listeners find us. like me and you weren't quite hip to Umphreys McGee, I highly recommend you check it out. It's a unique band with a cool mix of influences and Chris's drumming is just killer. It was great to hear about his Chicago roots, his experience in LA, which mirrored mine in many ways, and how he's found a home in Nashville. So let's get to it with Chris Myers. The volume increases till it's louder than what you said. Uh, I'm actually visiting my parents, uh, oh, nice. so I'm in I'm in Inverness, Illinois, which is a Chicago suburb right now. This is where I grew up. Right on, right on. Yeah, Chicago boy. Yeah, you know it. <laughs> I'm kind of fascinated with Chicago, and I've I've um, interviewed a few drummers from there. Um, but like, did you? Oh, really? Did like, did you kind of come up there? Did you uh, did you move away as soon as you were able, or like, how much did Chicago play into your? Uh, you know, formation. Yeah, I started here with my whole development with everything. You know, I learned on a you know on a, a 
old 60s Ludwig drum set that my uncle gave me when I was eight years old. And then, you know, I started self-teaching myself for a few years and then decided to go get lessons at the local drum store. Mm-hmm. And I was very blessed to have a great store back in the day that some older drummer connoisseurs would know called the Drum Pad, which was in Palatine, Illinois. Yeah. There, there At that store, you would see all the pro drummers and all the drum clinics, you know, more so than any other suburb around the Chicagoland area. And, uh, I mean, there were a few other great stores in, in Chicago as well, but like this particular one was, was run very tight knit. It was, uh, Jim strike the owner and then, uh, Victor Salazar, who's actually pretty well known in the drumming community. Uh, he had a, a store now that eventually he sold to someone else, but it, it was originally called Vic's Drum Shop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every, everybody knows knows that one, I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and Vic is really, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a very noteworthy, well-known guy. So, like, I grew up with those guys out here in the suburbs. And um, then I eventually, after college and uh, grad school and living in the city for 14, 15 years, I moved away, you know, to L.A. for a couple of years and then from there, moved to Nashville, where I live now. Got it. Got it. So you you mentioned uh, college and grad school in Chicago. What what school or schools were those? I started out uh, undergrad at Elmhurst College. Elmhurst College is where I was born. Or Elmhurst was where I was born. Mm-hmm. The city uh, just west of uh, Chicago, about a half hour or so. And um, yeah, Elmhurst College is where I went for undergrad. It is very... Uh, it's a smaller community-based college. It's now called Elmhurst University, by the way. Mm-hmm. I, I correct myself. And they but have back like when a, I was, they have a big yeah. jazz festival there, right? Like a big college jazz festival competition kind of thing. That's correct. Yeah. Yes, it's uh, very uh, notorious for the jazz studies programs in most colleges in, in, in the in the U.S. Right, and it's one of those smaller schools that you know had a great faculty of of jazz studies directors and that's kind of the direction i went in um they didn't have that degree to offer when mm-hmm. i was there so i had to choose something you know some something along the lines of that and i started with music business but um music business uh became what, more what, of a minor what is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it was back in the day when you know there were more uh there were older older idioms you know with people still embracing the uh the sale of of albums right which was like a whole archaic era right you do a whole and, semester uh, on mechanical licenses <laughs> exactly and uh yeah so then from there i i switched around sophomore year to be just a bachelor of arts music degree and then after that um you know my i owe a great deal to my director at that time who was doug beach who just retired and uh he's a grammy award-winning um famous uh director as well as a public, you know, part of a publishing company and published a lot of great music on Kendor. Yeah. I feel like I encountered that name, uh, during my, you know, college (laughs) experience. Yeah. Yeah. He's very well known for being one of the better educators. And, um, then after that, I went to, uh, to play, you know, uh, professionally in Chicago, just freelancing, playing what they call jobbing gigs, you know, right, weddings, right. parties, bar mitzvahs, whatever. Um, and then from there, 
uh, went to uh, like about a year or two later, I went into uh, grad school at DePaul University. DePaul. Got my master's there. Yeah. yeah. And that was a really great program as well. That's obviously very, it's probably one of the top 15 or so jazz study schools. I think it still is. Um, yeah. Yeah. I remember when I was looking for grad school, um, I, I auditioned there. Um, and I think, I think I got in, I didn't, I didn't get like a scholarship or an assistantship or anything, but I was accepted, but I ended up going to Kansas city for grad school. But yeah, I remember being like super impressed with DePaul's program and, you know, just the fact that it's embedded in Chicago and, and for sure. you know, really much, really, uh, very much intertwined into the, into the scene there. Um, Oh, for sure. I had the same yeah. experience at <clears throat> at University of Missouri, Kansas City, where that school was just Ooh. interwoven into the scene in Kansas City. So, like, did you when when you were going to grad school at DePaul in Chicago, um, did you have designs on like um, staying in Chicago and kind of using DePaul and and its uh, interconnectedness to like launch you further into that scene? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And it wasn't necessarily um, a scene uh, that I knew about, per se. You just kind of dove in with just any opportunity to get uh, work yeah. and training yourself to be whatever you can be at that time. Uh, and at that time, there were a lot of just working dates, you know, society gigs and things. And it might not necessarily be what you want to do, but it gets you financial stability to get to the session work and you know that you want to have and I was learning about that too so in addition to playing you know lots of you know weddings and corporate parties and stuff I was meeting players on those on those hits you know on those gigs and they were giving me opportunity to do opportunities to do recording sessions right um certain club dates with certain projects and and Chicago has always had an affluent you know community of sure. music from all genres and you know it's pretty tight-knit when you think about it over the decades and when you get to know the right players and people they'll start giving you work to do more creative gigs for for good pay right and i did that for a couple of years uh, at least and um you know that's where i kind of cut my teeth to yeah. start yeah i like that phrase training yourself to be whatever you can be <laughs> Because like at that yeah. stage in your career, like we've been, we've been talking a lot lately about, you know, kind of the, the beginning of your career and how, you know, just being busy and having, you know, kind of a full calendar feels like a win and like is a big win in a lot of ways. Um, and how, you know, later in life, um, you, uh, you start to, um, reprioritize it's like okay let me let me just stop doing everything i can do and let me think about what do i really want to do let me let me have a little more control yeah. a little more agency about what i say yes to and the situations i end up in um did you when when did you turn that corner from from just like uh filling up the calendar with anything you could to being more intentional about you know setting a direction for yourself I'd say it was probably around 2002 mm -hmm. when I started really figuring that out. Um, I was playing around already, getting work. People were noticing me. I was in a project that has that's still happening, and uh, we've just resurrected it um, again. It's called Kick the Cat. 
which is a fusion funk based project of some really you know heavy players from Chicago that I've I grew up with. Right. Uh, Chris Siebold being one of them, who's a famous guitarist. What's his name again? And, uh, Chris Siebold. Cool. Chris Siebold has done several projects. Um, Played with Sandeep Berman's band, mm-hmm. uh, nationally, internationally. He worked with uh, Garrison Keillor's band. Uh, no shit. Yeah. Wow. And um, he did that for many years with Chris Teeley and a bunch of other amazing players. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, I've learned to play with some, some, you know, anyone from a, a band leader, a music director, um, even local radio DJs who wanted to do like cover projects. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you just kind of learn to meet with people. And once I got there, then I started thinking, well, at that time, I wanted to be kind of like what a lot of these clinician drummers are doing creatively. Right. Like Chad Wackerman at that time. And people would come through and do set, you know, do particular, uh, you know, clinics. And uh, I would also learn from jazz drummers. And that's kind of what I really wanted to do. But as a lot of players who are technically, uh, um, you know, sound with things and, and really trained. They want to do that for a living, but it's jazz is very difficult to make a living. Yeah. Um, so I kind of was getting formulated in, the, in a, you know, I was getting more defined in where I wanted to go. And, uh, but I also wanted to keep an open mind to any open gig opportunity. And lo and behold, the fall of 2002, I got an opportunity to send my, my press kit as they called them back in the day. Right. <laughs> Uh, to uh, Umphreys McGee, and I didn't know much about them at all until my friend told me about them. And I sent—I I just drove my press kit, right, uh, you know, over to the manager's mailbox and just put it in there. Wow! And then heard back about a week later, um, auditioned the next month, and then got the gig. You know, wow. and that changed everything. So at that yeah. time, they were a Chicago-based band. They were no, they were already established nationally at that point um they were chicago based only because a lot of them you know went to school in indiana okay yeah and uh and so they decided to go to the next you know major market major city to live and develop a home base right and so they chose chicago around 2000 i believe Hmm. and um yeah so they they got about five or six years ahead of me establishing uh Umphreys McGee and yeah. by then they had already played Bonnaroo and High Sierra Music Fest and Jazz Fest and a bunch of you know you know notable uh, jazz festival or I mean sorry rock festivals right and uh, yeah so they but yeah Chicago based cool generally and so you know I've I've been aware of Umphreys McGee sort of just peripherally like for for whatever reason it it hasn't sort of penetrated my atmosphere so i'm i'm glad to get this opportunity to talk with you because in listening to some of it um it's it's fucking cool and <laughs> like I, oh, need, thanks. I need to dig into it more um but thanks, like man. for for people who who uh also may not be super hip to it um what would you say is like if 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 somebody is into that band what other bands are they into? Like, what is, is there a category you can put it in? Is you know who are sort of the cohorts of other artists and bands that uh, that Umphreys would would run with? Oh, run with or actually be influenced by? Well, both. Does it, or both. Yeah, I mean, 
they were fortunate enough to be able to play with people like Medeski, Martin, and Wood, and mm-hmm. at a young age, um, you know, uh, I think there were other bands that were creative at that time in the scene. Um, uh, Galactic was doing pretty well at that time, with which is as you know, Stanton Moore, who's who's another very well known ambassador in the drumming education community, right. Uh, much respect for Stanton and uh, much re- also Adam Deitch, who was playing, I think, just getting off the run with John Schofield and starting to kind of branch off and of doing other things after his album uh, Uber Jam. Yeah. God, what a great that record lineup. that is, man. <laughs> it really is. And that that band was was killer. I mean, I saw them play at the J- Jazz Showcase back in 2000 or 2001, and it was it was it was smoking. Yeah. They're they're really good. I love that record because it's it's simultaneously like it's very much of its time, right? Yeah. Um, but it you, you listen to it now and and um it's it stands up. Like it doesn't feel gimmicky, it doesn't feel cheesy, like it's of its time, but you're like, man, this is fucking good. <laughs> it truly really is. It's legit even in itself as a as a as a an ensemble and of course you know, under the name of, you know, Schofield, it's like basically like seeing Miles or someone like that yeah. of, of that instrument evolving and seeing where he, he's he's evolved at that time. And I mean, I think he made a really great decision to put that that project together. It was more groove oriented and funkier, more earthier, less of that 80s, like blue matter, you know, spunk to it, which I thought was great, too. But yeah, different. And so, yeah. You know, another artist like that, Schofield, and um, some of the jazzier names uh, or session player type, you know, type artists were going in through the jam band scene at an early stage, which was smart because that's been the most reliable long-term touring um, machine uh, uh, industry that there ever was. And uh, I think that it still is, you know, truly, uh, you know, uh, what's the word? It's it's continuing to uh, to, de- to to grow and, and develop with some major artists as well, and yeah, it's pretty amazing. So yeah, I think those artists were all playing similar festivals and even Cobills, uh, Bela Fleck and the Fleck Tones uh, was I think another one that the band opened up for and other opportunities and you know there's there's a lot of other ba- oh Lettuce was like I think the project that. Adam was getting with then and now is still right. happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you had those kind of projects. And in addition to um, those sort of like uh, jammy, funky influences, I hear, um, I hear the police. Um, I like. I even hear some Rush in there here and there. Uh, I feel like at, at least the you know what I've listened to kind of straddles the line between the jam thing and kind of the prog fusion thing. Um, in a, sure. in a in a really cool way, and I especially hear the the prog fusion thing in your drumming, um, what you, in in what you bring into that band. So like you mentioned, um, like Chad Wackerman and and some of the clinic guys. Um, is it is it safe to assume that you're bringing you know Weckle and Vinny and Dennis Chambers and and all of those sort of like nineties. <laughs> Uh, right fusion guys were, were those your guys sure. coming up yes of course you know i was a young hungry student and i still am a student but i mean i was particularly uh 
influenced by those more fusion-y, uh, all, all styles, all-around players. Yeah. And I always was fascinated by, by players who can just put on a different hat and be like professional experts at different genres. Right. Uh, that always stuck to me. Um, so yeah, Vinny in particular was obviously the one that everyone always tends to, to, to cherish is the shrine, the holy shrine of drummers. But I think there's a reason. I mean, he, he came from this sort of growth and this sort of, uh, extraordinary, uh, space being like at a young age in his twenties playing with Frank Zappa and, and learning how to, to be in that particular, you know, musical drum drumming combat mode from the get go in the twenties, <laughs> right. having these long, you know, full day rehearsals for 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 weeks on end, and and being able to do it so naturally and effort, almost effortlessly, more so than other players. Yeah. Like he just has always got a gift, but he uses his ear and he teaches drummers to do that with all that kind of facility. Guys like Dave Dave Weckl, similar. Um, and Dave has a more, I think, even polished sound when he was in their younger stage. Yeah. Um, and polished meaning like, you know, the production right. was, was a, a little less of that, you know, harsh, like Mahavishnu, aggressive, amazing, beautiful sound. And then you got the more slick Chick Corea sound, which was, you know, a trendsetter. Yeah. And, um, and Dave and Vinny represented that. And, of course, it taught you as a drummer to really like – to dare to be different, take what's been done in the past and, you know, innovate something from that, you know, and I think you, you get like a, a newer prototypical version of what Tony Williams and yeah. Yeah. How Foster and all those kind of players did. Right. And, and it's, a, it's a, it's a, yeah. it's sort of a risky, um, it's a, it's a risky ethos for a lot of drummers to, to, try to do what drummers like Vinny and, and Weckl did and, and still do, which is taking like a really active and aggressive role in the music. Um, and those guys are almost always able to do it in a way that does not step on the music, but at the same time, yeah. like pulls some focus, like, Hey, I'm here. I'm, I'm getting after that shit. Um, so like did you did you find yourself trying to walk that line um either in yes. you know the early days of Umphreys or something else? Absolutely. I admit I was uh I promptly admit that and I, I think that it's important <laughs> to you know be okay with that because you you might be afraid to say that because so many players went through the same you know approach and I think that there's nothing wrong with that if, if it's the right resources. And as long as you make something unique of it from that and, and, and don't just simply imitate it, then you're fine. Right. I mean, you're going to still play some of the same, you know, the, the nature of things is still going to be the same. You might play some of the same rudiments on your drum fills for a while. But, I mean, that helps people develop something from there. And then you just have to play through it to finally get what it is that you're looking for. And then you find it, you make something of your own there. And... Yeah, that's what Vinny and Dave represented to a lot of young students like myself at that time. Yeah, and I think they, you know, they obviously had the the confidence to, um, you know, uh, go for it in that way. Um, and I feel like you know a lot, <laughs> a lot of drummers have like may have that confidence, but it's like naive confidence. It's you know, <laughs> it's confidence they don't necessarily deserve. Um, but 
I I think if if you're if you're gonna try and fashion your playing that way, like you you need to have sort of a confidence, a fearlessness, um, and an openness, and you also need to be in a band with other musicians who are open to that and who um you know if if you take something too far, uh they'll be able to roll with it. It'll be a conversation instead of being in a group where you're just going to get shut down constantly. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like a process of learning and then unlearning, right? which is even a life lesson, but you know, it's good that you, it's a process you almost can't really skip. I think because yeah, it teaches you, you know, an early stage of motivation, wanting to learn to excel uh, and a, almost an obsessive quality to uh, strive for that. And then, you know, the willingness to pers- persevere against the, all the odds of the conflicts of people telling you, oh, you can't do that, you can't do this. Well, that teaches you how to da- dare to be different and go against those, those naysayers. And then once you do, you can then start to learn, well, what can I do to bring this to the next level of – greater contacts, greater studio sessions, greater experiences. And, and it often involves you kind of uh, stripping away some of the detailed work you've put into your fills and to your craftsmanship and make it smoother and more grooved and streamlined and open, more spacious right. for the ensemble because it's all about the ensemble instead of about you Right. in a micro sense. You know, like you start to get away with that or get away from that. And, um, you know, you just have to study this, all the different jo- uh, styles and genres and you, you want to like, you know, uh, unlearn things as you, as you learn it. It's, it's a hard process to, to explain, but yeah. And I think uh, like when, when you're talking about, you know, contributing to the ensemble, um, and, you know, quote unquote playing for the song, which we've just, uh, you know, exhausted that phrase, but for a reason, um, yeah. I think I think the the greatest contribution you can make to an ensemble or to a song is a clear idea. And that idea can be simple, it can be complex, but as long as it's clear, it's it's something that the band and the listener can sort of work with and digest and latch onto. And I think, you know, one of the most amazing things about drummers like Weckel and Vinny is that they were able to express incredibly context or incredibly complex ideas very clearly um so yeah true absolutely yeah yeah. and so like i think if you're if you're going after complexity it you know so many of us like none of us are are weckle or vinnie and it ends up coming out as this sort of like scattered uh you know cloudy cluttered thing instead of a clear idea that's true yeah that's there are pros and cons, I think, to that, and there's always going to be an opinion or a critic, you know, deciding how to identify what you're doing or classify it. Um, but I think what's important is that you put yourself through the event, the the journey of that, which is really the spirit, spiritual side of it, right? You know, and I think that's what younger players continue, well, what they need to continue to do, uh, because nowadays they have resources beyond belief, you know, to truly analyze and, you know, um, take a, a player from their video work to their, you know, some of their workshops, their transcriptions, and really analyze it and, and maybe, you know, perhaps imitate it for a while. 
and then learn from it. That's great. But it's at the same time, you want to learn how you can just throw yourself out there and give yourself four bars of groove and then four bars of improvisation right on the spot. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So in your, um, you know, in your audition for Umphreys and in the early days of joining that band, um, was it kind of made clear to you what your role needed to be or were, were they open to, you know, what you showed up as? How did you sort of negotiate uh, and, and find your footing and, and your role in that group, you know, personally in it and in that music? Um, I think that personally, um, I, so just, just so you know, I just realized that, and I'm embarrassed to say that my battery is running low here. So oh, hell. I'm going to walk with you as I get my, uh, charger and I apologize. No, all good. <laughs> so yeah, as far as my influences and how it was embraced in the music or, or accepted, uh, I was very lucky with my parents to do that. So my parents, sorry, with my, uh, with my bandmates. I as, said my parents could them in my parents' right, house. As you're right. walking through your parents' house. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, basically the the main thing was um, letting them be who I was as a player and then to um, maybe then teach me along the way what they would prefer for like communication, for setup, you know, yeah. what, would be what would be best for me to uh, represent the sound more authentically through the right, you know, the right, uh, fills, the right setups and stuff like that. Yeah. But basically that was it. And then I think that, you know, you just learn to, uh, develop, uh, you know, the right sound that they want, uh, through time, you know, and then they want you to be you. Right. They, they've always expected me to be me. Right. Know? I think it's, and, um, it's this, it's this negotiation. It's this middle ground. Like you, you find out what they want. Um, and, but you know, the, the better they get to know you, um, it's less of a negotiation because what they want is what you are. Like they, they want more of what you are as they get to know it. Yeah. And then over that time, you know, you go through all the, the process of trying to figure out what it is that, okay, here we go. I'm in tune here. <laughs> Powered. 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 And um, yeah, I'd say that you just kind of have to learn on, learn about what you can almost get away with as a you know, <laughs> right. improviser. Then you also want to be, you know, a part of something that's greater than you, which is sharing this groove and this feel with an audience that actually reflects on what you do and they really do the fan base really taught me a lot about the importance of connecting with the audience more than any other gig i've ever played mm -hmm. um, because these fans they're very inquisitive and they're very intuitive and they want to know about you as a person as well as you on the stage and uh you know it's great you're you're really being challenged and, and that's that's a beautiful thing so yeah. i i embrace it it took me some years to like you know get into it. And, and I, I admit that I was a little, um, I was timid, but just felt like I was being, you know, kind of, um, scrutinized and stuff in some ways. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a beautiful thing once you can embrace it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it's something that, um, I've certainly struggled with. And I think most musicians struggle with if you, 
you know, if you join a band, especially a, a band that's already kind of a thing and a going concern, um, there's this this period of like, um, you know, wanting to fit in and and wanting to give them what they want, but also, um, you yeah. know, maybe maybe getting impatient or a little bit defensive about like, well, I mean, you guys fucking hired me, uh, you you know, you could you could. Uh, just nitpick and direct any drummer out there. Um, but what about letting me be me? Um, so, you know, either one of those impulses can sort of go too far into an unproductive place, but, um, that negotiation and that period of like, okay, I'm going to give a little and hopefully, you know, I'll get a little in return. And before too long, I'm going to be sort of like interwoven into, (laughs) into this thing. Yeah. It's, it's it's a delicate situation because, you know, you got to first and foremost, the fundamentals of just being in the gig alone is something you have to really be grateful for in every way. And you have to really hold that hold that high in regard because, you know, before you want to start, you know, expressing your your thoughts or demands or I don't even know if it's demands, just your your insistence to be you know heard as, a, as an artist in your own ways, you got to also just embrace that you have a gig and that you're able to <laughs> live your life financially yeah. you know, with, a, with some stability there. Yeah. Um, Cause there's a lot of amazing artists out there who never get the opportunity. So you always got to remember that no matter what. Yeah. And then secondly, you have to just take that and just sort of, you know, like I said, you have to have your voice and you gotta, it's part of the, it's part of the gig too, to find, where you fit in with the artists that you work with and the, and the other drummers and peers that you're, uh, you know, you're playing with. Right. So it's just a matter of figuring out where you, who you are. And that, that process is really, it can be, you know, amazing. It can be, uh, exhausting. Um, it can be really tough on your conscience, like, you know, your, your self-esteem, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah more than we want to admit, but you know, at the same time, it's beautiful too. Cause that's, if you even have that opportunity, that's, you're already, you know, you're already many steps ahead. Yeah. So I think that's great. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, it takes a lot of courage to be you and, uh, to dare to be different from what's been done. And, um, uh, has been one of those gigs, fortunately through the industry that's helped me express myself uh, artistically. Whereas, some some particular gigs otherwise wouldn't you know yeah. structure is less democratic it's a little more you know um dictatorial or you know dictatorial yeah. um and i think that you would have to adjust a little harder to to doing that like playing what else someone else is dictating for you and if you're willing to do that right right and sometimes okay. you know different but. different circumstances i think will make you willing or, or unwilling to do that Um, but you know, whether it's in an audition, I mean, this is kind of an idealistic notion, but I I think whether it's in an audition or in the early days of a gig, um, I think the, the more, the more you can play authentically as yourself, like, you know, meet the needs of the band, meet the needs of the music. Um, but the, the more you can really express your identity, on the instrument, like don't bullshit yourself. Don't bullshit the band. Don't misrepresent yourself 
in a style of playing or music making that isn't really you, I think the better the chances are that you're going to end up in a a situation musically and personally where you really belong. Um, and and that really sort of, uh, you're, you're able to like fully realize you're playing as opposed to just like trying to wrap yourself and morph yourself (laughs) around whatever you think the shape of the gig needs to be. Um, like you said, sometimes you've got to do that because if you're given an opportunity, that's huge. And you know, you want to do what you have to do to, um, to meet the opportunity. Um, but at the same time, if you're not, if you're not true to your identity, you could end up in a situation that maybe years down the road, you're like, I'm not happy here. I'm not, I don't feel like myself. And it's okay to, 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 you know, consider that to players. You, if you get a gig and you're, you're grateful for it and you got to hold on to it, doesn't mean that you have to commit to it for the rest of your life. If you're feel like you're, if you feel like you're compensating some, some part of your soul in some way, like, you have to think about these things for sure, but you got to weigh them in with all the other variables, like how grateful am I really for this? And how much do I, I really, how much can I benefit from this and, and to, to stay here versus somewhere else where I would search again right. and, and start all over or whatever. Cause that, that's a, that we're all faced with that, you know, and especially with someone who's been with a band for almost 20 plus years. Um, you know, I could be one of those people that's like, you know, trying to decide what I want to do with the rest of my career, mm-hmm. you know, and we all think about it. Um, cause there's all, there are also, there's also the outside world who labels you or, you know, puts you in a category in the industry, which is kind of a, you know, for better or worse, it's a part of our, our job, you know, and people will classify you as this or that just to simply just say the statement, and, you know, and move on like, oh, yeah, he's just a jam band drummer or he plays in that jam band world. So people automatically assume this or that or A or B uh, about you as a player when there's so much more in your universe. Right. That people really give credit for. And, you know, you just have to kind of accept that that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And then you also have to say, though, but you can't accept, you know, that it's it has to be the end all be all of your career. You know, you can decide through, you know, smart decision-making where you want to go and how you want to make it work. That's the beautiful thing about this industry is we can, I mean, I, I guess, I don't know if it's the industry, but this life maybe is that you can decide in your life, you know, what's content, what's true contentment for you in that present moment. And if it includes a certain style of music that is a labor of love, then do it.
it's not often that we interview someone who has been in the same band for 20 years. Um, like that's, that's a rare thing. Um, and I think it's getting more and more rare. Consecutive years too. Yeah, for real. Um, so like over that time, um, how, how much of a desire have you had to, um, you know, uh, do do things other than that band, <laughs> right? Not I've in the, had some time. Not um, in the I've sense been working of, on and, and sorry, yeah. not in the sense of like you want to quit the band and do something else, but like you know, how much over that time have you sort of like uh, engaged in other projects? How much have you wanted to, and and how you know satisfied are you with your ability to do that over the years? Um, I've had a lot of different side projects over the years. Um, I started out with something in the early mid two thousands called drop Q, which was uh, a great keyboardist from Jersey named Brian Felix and now teaches on faculty over in uh, Asheville, North Carolina, I believe uh, in the jazz studies program there. And then uh, there was a lot of great players from that group. Some of them were the base, one of which was the bass player that play I play with now called kick the cat which we still continue to do. That's a funk fusion based thing that I really love to do. Yeah. That's like um, a, that's a muscular <laughs> aggressive yeah. kind of mixed meter, uh, you know, capital F fusion. <laughs> yeah. And I'm trying to find the, the modern equivalent to it nowadays with bands that are in the instrumental music category. Um, so we're, we're working on that. And then, um, I've done some things like jazz hits. I played with Stanley Jordan a couple dates. Mm-hmm. Um, Worked with Adrian Blue with his trio a couple times, right? Um, and I've worked with Mike Keneally uh, quite a bit, and I still do. Who's a famous guitar player you should know about, and also a multi instrumentalist. He's mm. a brilliant man, and he's like one of the one of the coolest guys in the, in the industry. He's he's great. Um, he was under Frank Zappa's last band at the end of his career, yeah, uh, or his life really, right, Frank's right. life. And, uh, and Mike's been doing the G three tours, and you know has been um, with Joe Satriani and his band and playing keys as well as guitar, you know, and, um, but Mike has his own thing. Um, and we've been working on some projects with other artists. When I was in LA, I got to, you know, collaborate with some, some people from the Zappa alum and other things. And uh, then there was this electronic project I did called digital tape machine, which was really fun. And, and we were killing it for a, w- a little while there from around 2012, I'd say 10 to 12. And we, we were playing the music live, the EDM thing, you know, instead of pressing space bar, we were actually doing those sounds pretty on point, but as a band. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was fun. Um, I also worked with, uh, you know, certain members of the Chicago community all over the, all across the board from, old post-punk to industrial music and, and like, you know, dancier stuff. I worked with a guy, a DJ um, named my boy Elroy, who's really famous, uh, not famous, but really well-known in the, in the community um, is what I was trying to say. But um, I got to learn to do the drummer DJ duet thing and, and do it right. Yeah. Um, what does doing it right look like? Well, I think it's just doing it right based off of, just studying the DJs instead of the drummers doing the, the DJ mm, yeah, duet. Yeah. You got to understand the, the edits and the way that DJs produce and then try to emulate that as a drummer creatively and do it with, you know, 
with a good good style and good quality, you know, like good sense of taste. And uh, it involved me even in incorporating like a hybrid setup with my own custom samples I would work on. And, you know, you would you would create these samples with, with engineers and then you would import them into whatever sound module you would use. And I was using the standard Roland SPDS at the time for mm-hmm. years. And now I've graduated from that to the DAWs pads and the Mimic made by Pearl, which is like this really powerful uh, sound module huh. that Pearl makes. And uh, you want to maximize your fidelity and the sound from, you know, uh, from six, you know, from eight, eight or sixteen bit to thirty two bit, right, right, or twenty four bit, you know, and it, depending on what you can get. Uh, but yeah, I did that for years and worked with Chris Poland, who was uh, formerly of Megadeth, and he <laughs> is actually like an Alan Holdsworth type player yeah. as well as our Shredder. But he's he's not. I mean, he's I haven't been in touch with him in a while. But we had a group. He had a group called Ohm O H M, and I we combined some uh umphreeze players and ohm together made ohm free <laughs> and we had that going on yeah yeah um, so yeah i've done a lot of different things and uh i continue to do recording projects for charity work with even some celebrities and stuff like the miraculous love kids is this famous thing or, or not famous but uh um it's growing to be a famous uh charity with uh you know along the likes of um uh you know i've worked with uh, Gilby Clark, <laughs> who was formerly of Guns N' Roses. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, uh, the Full House cast, Some whoever does music in that cast. Right. I've worked with on some events in L.A. Yeah, yeah. John Stamos and I shared a kit. And <laughs> you learn, you, you know, Dave Coulier had me do a, an audio book for, for children's, a children's audio book. Huh. And um, I've had some experiences, you know, doing some session work as well. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it sounds like over the years, you know, you you have had the the, the time and the freedom and the inspiration to just get into a lot of other stuff. And I think that's, uh, it, I mean, that's kind of the, the, the dream for a lot of drummers is to have a main thing that is a going concern that, you know, that gives you a platform that gives you a foothold. Um, but, uh, I think if, if you're, um, if you're doing one thing and only one thing, uh, it's going to get old no matter what it is. <laughs> Perhaps, you know, some people are okay with, with that, but you're right. It's like, I know drummers tend to have that, that like boundless energy that want, and they want to do certain passion projects. Mm -hmm. Like they have to, um, other than their regular, you know, full-time job. Right. Right. Yeah. It's just a matter of taking care of yourself when you do it. You know, you gotta go through all the, the learning lessons, the life lessons of, you know, taking care of your mind and body during this, this, you know, journey. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a great point because I think no matter what your working life looks like, um, just trying to contextualize it properly. Um, and, uh, you know, not, (laughs) not get wrapped around the axle about, uh, about any one aspect of it. Um, uh, is, is really helpful. That's, it's something that I'm, (laughs) I'm always working on that. <laughs> we all are. Right. And not, you know, not letting um, uh, a gig, We, you know, we talk about not letting a gig define you. You mentioned earlier how, like, you know, I, th- I think uh, you said, that, you know, there are people that are just going to write me off as a jam band drummer 
and you know whatever but if you if you don't um buck too hard against that and just let it be what it is you know have the the self-awareness and the um uh, the sense of security to know that like, that is not all I am. I know that's not all I am. They might not know that, but who cares? Um, yeah, that's, I think the key thing you said there is you had me at who cares. <laughs> uh, meaning you learn, even if you do care, that's good. That's, that's great too. That's, I think that's a great trait to have to actually care what people think. Mm-hmm. But then there's a point where you can't let them approve or disapprove of you and det- and that let that define you, right? You know that's where you have to really dig hard and and buck up and like look beyond, you know, the other perspectives or, or, or opinions of you. And you have to when you get in a position where you're in a you know a noteworthy project or artist or band you're working with, people are going to put you on a pedestal or compare you or compete. Um, and there's a lot of language there where people classify you, and that's part of the poly- like part of the whole you know, uh, competition part where they want to keep you in your, in your lane. Like, Oh yeah, you're this kind of drummer. You're great. Right. Meaning like you, if you just stay there and do what I say, I classify you as, and just stay there, you can stay in your lane, then we're cool. And that's what other artists do with each other sometimes. And you learn that and it's kind of a, you know, it's gotta be leery of that, but at the same time, don't let it, you know, fluster you. Right. You just have to just, keep learning. And if you want to be a funk drummer, if you want to be a, a jazz drummer, even though you're playing a different style of music, you can do that. If you just learn the resources and do it with a sense of taste and, uh, and, and intelligence and just learn all the right stuff and just get all the gigs, uh, that you can with, with that mm-hmm. and don't let anyone stop you from right. doing that. Right. It's really it. It's, it's not that simple though, because people will, even even agents, uh, people in the industry will be like, oh, well, that's that's really nice, but you really need to focus on this because this is what you really are. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, is it really who I am? Like, you don't really know that. You don't right. really know me or have the time to know who you really are in your and the depths of you. So you just need to bring that outward and just and just play and do it through action. Right. You know? And I think whether it's an agent or uh, a band leader or somebody else, I think, uh, you know, the the sort of negative or malevolent side of them telling you that it's 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 not about this is who you are and this is uh, what I think your, you know, your best bet at success is. It's more about this is how I can use you. <laughs> or this is how I can yeah, market too. you. Yeah. This is how I, I can agree. make money from you. Um, and, uh, you know, and if, it, it's going yeah, to happen, you know, it's yeah. hard to interrupt, but yeah, it's going to happen. You know, it's, it's, it's not like it's an evil corporation or anything. It's just, right. It's just unfortunate in the human nature of things. That's what happens most of the time. And, or, or at least some of the time. And I'm sure you experience it too, Zach, you know, we're, we're all dealing with, people wanting to pigeonhole and, and say what they want to say, but that's all it comes down to in the end of the day is just people that people are just saying, yeah. And it's just talking, but like, if you just want to just, you know, live your life through action and be content with that, that's, you know, that's right. like the ultimate, uh, secret of, of life there, you know? And, 
it's not, it's not, it takes a long time to find that. Yeah. Yeah. That. Like it's, it's hard, it's hard to manufacture your own validation because like we always, we always look outside ourselves for, for validation, um, that, you know, what we're doing and who we are is good. Um, but I think the, you know, the more you can just kind of find it from within yourself, the, the better off you're going to be in the long run. So it's easier said than done. But it reminds me of uh, you were talking about like, you know, what other people think of you or what other people say about you. Um, I forgot who said it, but there's this great uh, sort of axiom about like when when you're in your 20s, you really care what people think about you. And then when you're in your 30s, you don't care what people think about you. And then when you're in your 40s, you realize nobody was ever really thinking about you. <laughs> <laughs> that too. Yeah. Yeah. That's 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 something to, to remember too you know it's like don't take yourself too seriously or whatever yeah yeah you know um you mentioned uh you, like so you made moves from chicago to la and then from la to nashville um were were those moves that the the band was making kind of as a whole or were you were you uh traveling around on your own i was just traveling around on my own um the keyboardist from our band joel cummins from umphreys he he uh lives still currently lives in Santa Monica hmm. was living in Venice beach there. And he was one of the people I'd say that I knew that was living there and was inspiring me to, to give it a shot. I needed to make a change in my life at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, even both musically and non-musically. So I, I decided to move away and it was at a time where the band where I'm is, uh, we can all kind of be comfortable living in different spaces, right? excuse me, different cities. And then we could fly into our dates because that's what we were doing anyway. Right. I tried it out and um, that's what brought me there. And of course, uh, the, the industry there is such a high ceiling. It's one of the meccas of, of the music industry. And it was a very romantic era of, of younger players migrating there around 2014, I'd say. And um, that's Sorry, when to, I to went. To L.A. or to Nashville? To L.A. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that was it was kind of like a growing migration of players really going after it whether it was doing recording work or just uh, you know live shows just being in an industry and bringing it to a certain level of excitement um, and that was happening at that time there and I got to see all kinds of amazing players any time of the week still still is the case I'm sure but you know COVID definitely put a, a huge uh, you know yeah um, obstacle on that but sure. but I think getting back to it again and but then I spent two, three years there and um, decided that the commute was too hard for me to travel because we don't, as a band, we don't play the West Coast region too often. We only do it once a year. Mm-hmm. So I had to commute back and forth, you know, every week on Sundays or Mondays from either the East Coast or the South or the Midwest yeah. regularly and then drive or, or then get an Uber or you know, some kind of taxi service from the airport in LAX up to the valley where I was living, oh. which can be an hour and a half, you know, yeah. sometimes, some days. Yeah. It's just a beat. I lived in LA from 2010 to 2016. Um, and there, there are so many great magical things about it. But man, just like day to day life there is a heavy lift. Not easy. <laughs> Not easy, man. Yeah. It's, it's a, such a beautiful place. But like, you know, you realize, Sometimes it's a mirage. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Um, I, that's the Midwest of me. Forgive me for saying that. And I don't 
take it away from people who live there. I think if you can do it, it's just like in New York City. If you can, you can live there and you can make it. You can make it anywhere or whatever. You know, yeah. you can do it. Some plants and, thrive in the desert. Like it's just how it is. And and yeah. you know, certain personalities thrive in L.A. Other types of personalities thrive in New York. Um, but I, I don't, I don't, I think you and I are kind of on the same page. It's like, we, 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 we're not going to thrive in either one of those places. I, yeah, either that, or I'm just going to just lose, like suck the soul out of myself being on the four or five half the day (laughs) trying to get from point, just the grocery store and back, you know, like, I just think that that's something you have to think about. Like sometimes in the industry and music and all that, and the playing part, that's the easy part. Yeah. The hard part is everything else in life. And if you can try to manage to get yourself in a good life situation, more comfortable where your commute is a little easier on your peace of mind and, you know, you're less angry, less irritable. Yeah. Less tired. That right there is, yeah, that's it. You know, then you can enjoy the things in your life a little more. Yeah. You know. I, I'm glad I'm glad you're touching on this because, you know, different uh, guests of ours have talked about it in different ways. But, um, you know, the sort of the the musical life that you create for yourself and sort of your musical identity um, and, and whatever gigs you make yourself busy with um, are really, really connected and wrapped up in where you live and what the lifestyle there is like and whether or not that lifestyle um, serves you or, uh, you know, the opposite. Yep. And, and it could be some signs leading to the kind of life you've created and it could be just coincidence. But yeah, if you pay attention to all of that, that's, that's the smart way to, to go about it. Like decide if this is working for you or not. And, um, you know, you could still throw yourself out there and give, give a, an opportunity a shot, but then, you have to just keep everything else in check for your peace of mind. I mean, that's most important. Yeah. I think that was the one lesson I learned more than anything. Like instead of learning the the better, you know, learning better chops or learning the right way to play a song, I think you will find your happy spot that works for you and works for the people that work with you. And that alone it can be just good enough and getting into your other life, you know, um, disciplines or, or fundamentals is just as important. It's not even more important to yeah. surround yourself with the right energy and vibe to do what you can, what you want to do. Yep. That's, they don't teach that in clinics and, you know, a lot of lectures I noticed in, in jazz, even in music education, like, and it's a shame, but I think they're getting more to that nowadays. And I would like to be a part of that someday. I just have to get organized <laughs> and share my thoughts and my experiences because I see some drummers just really struggling with the travel thing or struggling with communication in general with people and, and trying to understand, you know, how harsh it can be or how, you know, um, amazing it can be and, and to not overlook those opportunities. All that stuff needs to be trained in, uh, in, in you as well as, a, you know, a touring or a recording artist. Yeah. Um, we've interviewed, uh, so many, like one of the things I love about doing this podcast is that we don't just interview players from New York, LA, Nashville. Um, all of these second and third and fourth tier cities, um, have amazing music scenes and amazing players. And, um, I've interviewed so many people who have like found that 
home for themselves, whether it's the place they grew up or a place they just kind of came to and was like, you know, this place is my speed. And it, it may, you know, one of the effects of it may be that um, you you don't like the ceiling is lower, right? Like you, you may not get the kind of opportunities that you would get in New York or Nashville or L.A., um, but you can you can make a living. You can have rewarding musical experiences, and you can just live and be in a place that suits you. And yep. I think in the long run, that's that's worth more than you know any tour or any paycheck that uh, another place might be able to throw at you. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of people in these podcast communities, I know for a fact, do the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of these great. Uh, supporters of this craft that we do and this brother brotherhood that we and, and sisterhood yeah. uh, that we share is you know this family we have is 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 ingrained on on just remembering just the whole point of doing this like why why are we doing this is it's it's for enlightenment you know it's and then yeah for those who want to go for it and be a soldier and like get out there and try to make it as you know, for a living I co- totally encourage you man go for it you yeah. know and you just got to be ready for all the you know, you know, the, the, the things that you got to train for and you don't always, you won't be trained for it until you're in it. Right. Until you experience right. Sometimes and just be, just be strong and, and confident in yourself. I think that's, that's the main thing. And, and then also work with others. The main thing with being confident involves how you reflect on others and how you speak to them and how you, you know, right. how you and be. You, you just summed it up. Like it's, it's about, it's about, um, you know, enlightenment and and sort of uh, uh, self actualization, um, but it's also about community. Um, yeah, and you can you can get all of those things in New York or L.A. or Nashville, um, but th- those aren't the only places you can get them. And and you know, finding a community, like I said, where you belong. It's like finding a band or a group of friends where you really belong, and you can yeah. th- thrive as who you are. Um, so uh, has has Nashville been that for you? I would imagine so. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love it here. Um, I love the hospitality here, the Southern mm-hmm. hospitality. And yeah. uh, the players here are are immensely talented and, and diverse. There's more diversity here than ever when I got here. Yep. It's it's always been known to be this big country pop machine, you know, of an industry, which it, it is the, the nucleus of it. Right. But it doesn't mean that's all it is. There's a lot of other things going on here. Uh, it's the, or actually not here right now where I am, but there, uh, where I live, right. Um, you know, in Nashville, there's, there's also another growth period that's kind of unique in itself. People are, are migrating there for cost of living reasons, um, from the coastal cities, the big, the bigger markets and finding their, their place in it. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. I think, um, there are lots of agencies there, a lot of prompt, you know, PR firms, a lot of people helping with that side of things, social media content, yeah, um, building you, uh, your image and, and, you know, your, your direction. There's genres like jazz, jazz is actually starting to really evolve a little more there. Yeah. And, uh, and indie rock has always been kind of a cool staple in Nashville. Um, I found that as well as even some of the progressive metal bands that, that people like there's a lot of there's actually a scene there for that and um i think the only thing that nashville needs to do is just build its infrastructure a little better including venues yeah um venues are like either really small 
or really large. <laughs> right. And there's a lot of in between. Yeah. 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 That's a great point um, because, like, I, I live in Atlanta, and uh, my my podcast co-host and partner Matt Krause lives in Nashville. Um, so I've just I've cool. been spending more and more time up in Nashville, um, and you know, musically, like you said, it just it it feels like it's opening wider and wider and wider, and and I think you know the the country thing, the commercial country thing, is is always going to sort of run that town in a way, um, but. Um, I, I interviewed uh, Eric Slick, who's a great sort of uh, indie rock drummer. Yeah. You know him? Of course. Yeah, yeah Eric's great. Yeah. And he was just talking about how, you know, Nashville is becoming a place for everyone. It's it's no longer just for country people or just for one kind of drummer or, you know, drummers who want to do one thing. Whether You know, like drummers go there because they want to get into a touring band or they want to do sessions. Um, and obviously there's a ton of that there. But um, it's just you know, any kind of drummer can find shit to do there, like really good shit and a lot of shit. (laughs) Truly. Yeah. That's, that's it. Right. He hit it right on the head there. Like, I think that's, that's very true. That's how I feel about it. Um, you know, it doesn't take away from getting opportunities as a session guy, but you really, it's kind of hard here. It's, or there, it's a very competitive market, just like LA is just like New York is. It's a very closed in scene. I'm sure people have said, um, but you can learn from those artists and continue to find out who they are. And I, I've even had to learn over the years being there, who are the drummers to, to check out or to understand, you know, in the real business there, like the real session work, look up their socials, look up their bios or websites, right. see what they're doing. Yeah. Look up their interviews on working drummer podcast. There you go. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, I think there's still a place for you to find your creative, um, bubble there. I mean, there's so many cool little subcultures happening in the, you know, anywhere in the five points area to the east side to, you know, spots in certain, you know, regions of like in Franklin or whatever, like you can go find your, your niche, right? but you know, you can still keep trying to find your recording um, talents there. There's a lot of great engineers and songwriters. Yeah. Songwriters is what's key in Nashville versus other cities you can find a cool song songwriter at a weeknight workshop or a, you know, a songwriting session and then just or showcase and you can get to know them and as opposed to, you know, trying to network with other players who are doing the same thing you're doing. Right. You know, that's, that's a cool thing about Nashville. And then, you know, you learn to play songs and you might not be able to do all your cool chops and your fancy stuff, but you learn to get something going with, with an, uh, you know, an official project. And that's, that's a great thing about Nashville that's continuing to evolve. Yeah, yeah. And and I'm sure it will continue in that direction, but you mentioned sort of the disparity between this, you know, big handful of small venues and then just the big ass venues. Yeah. Um I think that's being in the that's that's going to develop in the next 3 to 5 years, I think. I mean, the city itself is needing to expand. I mean, from what it is, it, it, it's kind of difficult politics there because yeah. the locals probably and the council people don't want to do that because of taxes and, you know, the overhead and the oversight. But they have to kind of admit at some point this is it is now a metropolis. It is not just a, you know, a yeah. cool, charming, you know, or cool, charming, small southern town. It's, right. It's, it's a it's a big city now and it's going to be a big city. Yeah. 
Yeah. And they just got to be ready for it. Yeah. I think Atlanta uh, has gone through the same thing um, in a couple of periods. Like, it, I think the first time it went through that was when the Olympics were here. Um, All right. And, and mm-hmm. you know, it was like Atlanta was like, holy, we, we got to get our shit together. <laughs> so, yeah, right. Like, they did. But then again, like 20, yeah. 20 years later, you know, the film industry started com- coming here. And like you said, the local government kind of looked around and was like, this, th- these people are coming. Like, we got to. <laughs> we got to step up here because um, there's an opportunity for Atlanta to play on a on a bigger field, on a higher plane. And I think the exact same thing is true for Nashville. Um, and the thing that's unique about it is that it's going to be built on music. Like Atla- yeah. Atlanta went through it, you know, the Olympics were the catalyst and then the film industry was the catalyst. But in Nashville, like this expansion and this redefinition of its musical identity is sort of the catalyst for all this development. And, um, I mm-hmm. hope they, I hope they kind of harness it. I hope the, <laughs> I hope they can, you know, rise to it. I agree. Yeah. That's a good point. Atlanta is definitely like a larger version that's been through that expansion and, and Nashville is about to go through it, you know, again and again. And yeah, I hope that everything works out. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't we all, man, hopefully, yeah. hopefully the, the city council will abide. Yeah. The city council, <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, except, you know, it's like all the, it's like the old, you know, politics and, and then the new, you know, yeah. trying to work together and, you know, I think in, in, in an industry town that's so unique like Nashville, that's something that, yeah, is to behold and it continues to evolve. And and it's um, interesting you say that because there's like there's the political infrastructure of the city government and there's the political infrastructure of the musical community. And both of those camps have an old school and a new school. Um, yeah. So, man, what a what a mess. we <laughs> <laughs> I, I've I've waded into yeah I've waded yeah. into territory that I'm just unqualified for. Thanks a lot for doing this, man. It was great talking to you. Yeah, you too, Zach. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Absolutely, I'll be in Nashville um, periodically soon. Are you going to do the the Music City Drum Show? Or are you going to be around there? You know, I'm not familiar. What, what, when does that happen? It's you know July. Um, I I should have it on the tip of my tongue, but it's in my phone it's july 9th and 10th uh at the uh the fairgrounds in nashville um yeah and uh yeah it, it, like the, the you're you're out that weekend yeah but it's great to know i i'm still learning about these things you know there's yeah last year was the first year um and it was you know for for the first year it was a pretty successful uh you know show out as far as um you know the the artists and the companies that that came to exhibit there um, and this year it's going to be like twice as big. It's like, it, it's kind of like a, a lot of, um, a lot of parties were sort of like watching last year and we're like, let's, is this going to be a thing? Let's see if it's going to be a thing. And then last year it was cool. like, oh, it's a thing. So now a lot, it's going to be a much bigger thing. Is it kind of like what the, 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 shop that the, the workshop that they do here in, uh, the suburbs of Chicago, St. Charles, like there's a drum thing here too. It's like just basically a. A convention of stores and people who like collectors uh some yeah um and uh okay. some you know just uh brands and manufacturers and so forth it's basically uh Great. filling the space that that summer nam stopped filling as far as the drums go um right because I yeah think, that's right 
Yeah, the drum, Summer Nam doesn't have a lot of that. Right, yeah. the drum presence at Summer Nam just uh, just was in decline for years and years. Um, and this guy Landon, uh, as well as our buddy uh, J.C. Clifford, just said like we have to we, like Nashville needs a summer drum thing, and we're gonna do it. So I'm glad. Yeah, I'd love to do and and please, yeah, by any means, by all means, stay in touch with me if you like want to reach out and show me about some you know yeah i'm still learning about resources here yeah or there i i am too and i'm i'm trying to get up there more often and and uh you know show my face and participate so we'll be you you and i will link arms and we'll go out and do nashville i love that (laughs) great yeah cool cool well cheers man great talking with you be well thank you zach take care man there you go, Chris Myers. Be on the lookout for him around Nashville. Be on the lookout for Umphreys McGee on tour. And check out the new record, Asking for a Friend, wherever you get music. Come on back next week for Matt Krause's interview. Until then, stay safe, stay sane, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.